This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Network. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Network does not take responsibility for the statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about management with a government executive who is changing the way government does business. The Business of Government Hour is produced by the IBM Center for the Business of Government, which was created in 1998 to encourage discussion and research into new approaches to improving government effectiveness. You can find out more about the Center by visiting us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. And now, the Business of Government Hour. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and leadership fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government. Today, I am at the annual conference of the American Society of Public Administration, ASPA, in Washington, D.C. ASPA is the leading interdisciplinary public service organization that advances the art, science, teaching, and practice of public and nonprofit administration. ASPA's annual conference provides a yearly opportunity to bring together public administrators from across the discipline. The 2019 annual conference theme is a call for action, advancing public service. How does the work of the Government Accountability Office, GAO, advance public service? What are some of the key leadership challenges facing the U.S. federal government? We'll explore these questions and so much more with our very special guest, Robert Goldenkopf, Director of Strategic Issues at the Government Accountability Office. So, Robert, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So uh, I was wondering, before we delve into specific initiatives in your portfolio, perhaps you could provide us with a, a brief overview of the history and evolving mission of the U.S. Government Accountability Office, GAO. What are the fundamental ways GAO carries out its mission? Oh, sure. Well, first, a little bit of background on the agency itself. Um, we are the research and investigative arm of Congress, so we're part of the, the legislative branch. We're independent, we're nonpartisan, um, we're often called the congressional watchdog, and our job is to examine how federal agencies spend taxpayer money. But as part of that work, we have a tremendous uh, scope. We go wherever the federal dollar is spent. So it's not just federal agencies, it's state and local governments, it could be colleges and universities. Over time, we, we actually save taxpayers uh, tremendous amounts of money. Um, in uh, 2018, for example, we identified over $75 billion in financial savings in uh, fiscal year 2018. And that's a return of $124 for every dollar that's invested in, in GAO. So if you look at it another way, for every dollar that taxpayers spent on GAO, they got back $124. So we are unique among federal agencies in, in Washington in that we actually save uh, taxpayers money. We've also identified um, over uh, 1,650 um, non-financial benefits. So these would be um, program improvements, operational improvements uh, uh, across government. 
Our mission is constantly evolving. GAO was created in 1921, and it was primarily created to, to look at federal financial management system, which wasn't in good shape right after World War I. So we primarily audited vouchers, looked at government expenditures. But over time, as the responsibilities of government expanded, so too did the role of GAO. So beginning in the 1970s, we focused more on program evaluation. More recently, we expanded into um, investigations of um, criminal misconduct and civil misconduct. And that evolution continues to this day. We've recently stood up uh, a new team focused on science and technology evaluations. Interesting. So, you know, I want to switch to uh, your specific role, transition to that. Uh, What are your responsibilities and duties as director of strategic issues at GAO? Well, I'm part of a team, as you said, it's it's called the strategic issues team, and that focuses on cross-cutting areas of government. I like to think of it as the tools of government or the ways and means of government. It's how the government gets things done. So we focus on things like budget, money going out, what are we spending the, the money on? money that we're taking in. So it's the tax area. We also look at intergovernmental relations. We also look at um, federal data and also the federal personnel system. And of all those areas, I'm responsible for two of them, um, oversight of the federal statistical system. Now the the big area, of course, is the decennial census, which is uh, just right around the corner. And uh, also I'm responsible for GAO's oversight of the um, uh, federal personnel system. So, you know, regarding that portfolio, what are some of, let's say your top three challenges, if you will, that you face in that position? How have you sought to address those challenges? Sure. I think one, um, demand for our work Mm -hmm. uh, is ever increasing. And so that means that we need to work with congressional committees and their staff to make sure that um, there are no expectation gaps. Sometimes we can't get to work uh, work on a particular. We, we work. I should have mentioned by congressional, pri- primarily by congressional requests. Um, so a congressional committee or subcommittee will request our work. Um, we also work. Um, Another source for our work is mandates that are actually written into laws or committee reports can specify GAO, um, do work in a, on a particular subject. But we get a lot of those. And so we need to work with congressional staff to make sure that there are no expectation gaps. And the priorities that we set constantly shift. It's not that it's a, that there's, there's a queue, but it's not a static queue. And so we're constantly having to readjust that in order to meet congressional needs. So I think that's uh, one challenge right off the bat. A second challenge is that GAO is a nonpartisan agency, but we work in a highly partisan environment. And so what that means is that, um, you know, we need to stay true to our core values of accuracy, integrity, and reliability. We need to focus on the facts, make sure everything that we do is evidence-based, make sure that um, everything that we do, both in actuality and also in appearance, is equal. We, we, we treat both majority and minority equally. Okay, so there's, there's um, no preferences that way. We also have a set of congressional protocols that ensures that type of equal treatment to both majority and minority. A third challenge that I face is managing change. Uh, by that, I mean the, the nature of work and work are changing. 
that we're seeing a generational shift in the workforce. So we have younger people entering the workforce and they have different set of expectations and different attitudes towards their employers now. They're more focused on work-life balance. They're more focused on showing initiative and demonstrating creativity. And so we as an agency and myself as a manager needs to adapt to that and meet them where they are. Otherwise, we're going to lose them. That's great. So, you know, when you think about your role, and I like to use the first segment of all my conversations to get to understand my government executive and and the mission they lead, but what has surprised you most in your current role? I think that what has surprised me most is the pervasiveness of the management challenges facing federal agencies. So, for example, I started doing work on the decennial census in the late 1990s, a little bit before then I started work on the federal personnel system. And in both areas, you see how deeply entrenched many of these problems are. There has been progress in both areas, don't get me wrong. Um, Agencies are making improvements, but transformative change takes time. And a lot of the the problems that federal agencies face are deeply entrenched. They're hard problems to solve. And so here it is now, 20 years later, and we're seeing agencies are still struggling with many of those same issues. So for example, Centennial said both areas are still high-risk areas. They're both on, on GAO's high-risk list. And what that means is that you know change takes time. But it also means that as an agency, we need to get at the root cause of the problems. If we just focus on the surface issues, we're going to be waiting a long time for improvements to happen. Well, what about you? Can you tell us a little bit about your career path? What brought you to GAO uh, in your current role? Oh, sure. Um, I actually started at GAO over 30 years ago as an intern. I was fresh out of graduate school. um, And it turned out that um, I didn't think I would be there as long. But it turns out that GAO is a fantastic place to work. Um, The mission is a good one. It's a noble mission. The people are are wonderful. And there's uh, many different career paths and opportunities to work in many different areas. So I started out in uh, a a separate area in GAO. I thought I was interested, and I was at the time, in uh, science and technology policy, aviation policy. And so that's where I, I started out. But then... Um, as GAO's needs change and also my interests change, I was able to move around GAO and work in, in different spaces. I worked in GAO's recruiting office for uh, about uh, a year or so. Then I had an opportunity to move into a, a different team and focus on federal personnel issues when I felt that I was uh, pretty much, you know, said all I could say in, in that area and was just looking for a change. The 2000 census was ramping up, so I thought, okay, here's an oppor- uh, another opportunity for me, and so here I am now leading the work in, in that area. So it's it's been it's been uh, wonderful. That's great. So you know, given your role and the fact that you're you know, as you pointed out, GAO is a legislative branch agency, correct? And what makes an effective leader? And given the various stakeholders you need to deal with, who's, who's influenced your leadership style? Yeah, sure. Um, I I think. You know, for me, what what works, I think a lot of it comes down, I believe that Maya Angelou said this, people won't remember what you do, they won't remember what you say, but they will remember how you make them feel. 
And so I find that it's the, the, the people skills that, that matter most. Somebody at GAO, um, former executive there, said if you focus on the people, the work will take care of itself. And so by extension, um, what I try and focus on three areas um, as a leader, um, people, products, and partnerships. So I, I try and devote most of my time to dealing with people, making sure that the people I work with, both above me, laterally, and the people who report to me are getting what they need. And I think that there's a tendency to overcomplicate things. You know, there's there's thousands and thousands of pages of management literature and personnel literature. And I really think what it comes down to is just remember what you were taught in kindergarten. It's, it's the simple things. Say thank you. Say please. Apologize when you're wrong. Empower people. Give people the, the space to, to do the work that they're capable of. Allow them to make mistakes. So, you know, so that's the, the people side of it. Um, the second area is products. And by that, I mean, it's the deliverables GAO provides our congressional clients. And so we provide a range of different deliverables. I mean, most people are familiar with the reports that we write or our testimonies. So a big part of that is making sure that GAO's high standards for quality are met. So is it timely? Is it accurate? Is it well-written? Is it well-presented? The third area I focus on is partnerships. And by that, I mean how we conduct our work through others, both internal to GAO. Every project we work at there, work on there is my team, but we also collaborate with a number of other specialists within GAO. We have uh, methodologists, we have computer programmers, we have statisticians, we have attorneys, economists. So depending on the complexity of the job, the stakeholders that you have internally are large. Um, but then also we leverage the work of outside organizations. We share information, we get the lay of the land, we do environmental scans. And so that's all through the collaborations that we have with these outside organizations. So it comes down to people, products, and partnerships. What are some of the key federal workforce challenges? We will explore this question and so much more with Robert Goldenkopf, Director of Strategic Issues at GAO, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. The federal government can reduce costs while improving services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies to achieve similar benefits in government. Check out the IBM Center Special Report, Transforming Government Through Technology. It outlines how technology-based reforms can reduce federal costs by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. Download Transforming Government Through Technology and all Center reports at businessofgovernment.org. How is the federal government leveraging data as a strategic asset? How's the federal government building the infrastructure for evidence-based policymaking? What does the future hold for the federal data and statistical communications? Join host Michael Keegan as he explores these questions and more with Nancy Potok, Chief Statistician of the U.S. within the Office of Management and Budget, OMB. That's next week on the Business of Government Hour. The Business of Government Hour every Monday at 11 a.m. on the Federal News Network. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, the ASPA Conference Series. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and my guest today is Robert Goldenkopf, 
Director of Strategic Issues at the Government Accountability Office, GAO. So, Robert, um, given your portfolio uh, in strategic issues at GAO, what would you say are your key priorities, strategic priorities? Sure. Well, my priorities are aligned with GAO's strategic priorities. And so GAO's strategic priorities are within the areas of well-being and financial security, national security, program management challenges, and maximizing GAO's value. So all the work that I do is seen through that lens. And so primarily the work that I do for government-wide human capital issues and also the decennial census deals with those program management challenges. So specifically for the decennial census, it's informing congressional decision-making on ensuring a cost-effective decennial census. And for the personnel area, it's strengthening talent management and making the federal government an employer of choice. So what are some of the you know, key external drivers and trends that have shaped and informed that, uh, that, those priorities? Oh, sure. Well, you know, there's Congress, for one thing. Um, we have the, the party shift, and so their, their focuses shift. And that makes a, a, a difference into the, the work that we do and the, the, the tone of the work. Changes in people and society, technology, those all affect the issues that, that we deal with. So, you know, I want to delve into some of these. And, and, and the first one I want to take up is the, the key federal workforce challenges. Um, how are federal agents seeking to address these challenges? And what are these challenges? Well, sure. The um, challenges facing the federal workforce, first, there's structural challenges. You have a large number of federal employees are eligible for retirement. It's roughly, and we've been looking at this for a number of years now, there's a cohort, roughly about a third of the federal workforce is eligible for retirement. So for some agencies and some occupations, it's a lot more than that, and some it's it's less. But the bottom line is that the federal workforce is, is aging, and agencies need to understand and do the workforce analytics to obtain better visibility on the dynamics of the workforce. So, so the first issue is is just the this the structural uh, inherent structural challenge of, of an aging and retirement eligible workforce. A second key challenge is mission critical skill gaps, both gov- in government wide areas such as STEM occupations, science and technology occupations, um, cybersecurity, human resource, economics as well as um, skill gaps in affecting particular agencies. So, for example, doctors and nurses within the Veterans Health Administration. The third challenge, and this is what exacerbates so much of this, is that so many of the underlying laws and policies and practices have not kept changes with changes to the workforce or changes to to agencies. So, for example, the the classification system, which is the basis for which... um, uh, pay is, is based on our, our, the classification system, among other things. That is a legacy of the late 1940s. Um, Title V, which um, is, is the law that uh, basically governs so much of what the, the civil service does, um, that was 1978. So, so much of what the foundation of the federal workforce is really just based on a workforce and a kind of work from a different era. You know, back, um, you know, we're knowledge workers today, whereas in the past, the workforce was much more clerically based and did not have the, the needs for advanced skills like we do today. Um, and so it just needs to be these different functions, talent management functions, need to be ma- modernized. 
how we recruit, how we um, onboard people, how we engage, how we develop people all have to be modernized. You know, I was wondering, um, how can federal agencies better leverage available recruiting resources? And perhaps you can identify some of those resources. Well, there's a lot of inconsistency across the federal government. I think that, you know, you may hear it said that uh, younger people, people right out of school, they're not interested in federal employment. I think uh, the, the bigger issue is people in school, they just don't know what federal agencies do. And I think that federal agencies then need to do a better job of recruiting on campus, more active recruiting, and building a brand on, on campus. The work that, that federal employees do is exciting. There are a lot of people who want to do challenging work and make a difference in our society. They just don't know that they can do that work in federal agencies. And so for those agencies that get it, that you know, actually go out and actively recruit, they build relations. This is something that, that GAO does. Um, we actually have a very active, we don't call it a recruiting program, we call it a campus relationship program. Um, it has top leadership attention. The, the head of our agency routinely goes out and speaks to college students, both some of them when they're here in Washington or sometimes when he goes out on, on his travels. We have uh, our SESers. A number of them are what we call um, campus executives, and they're responsible for building relationships on college campuses with students, with faculty, with administrators. And so when you do that, they understand that the work that you do they understand that your agency hires your particular skills, and so it's an easy transition. Um, so GAO, for example, um, we are looking to build the size of our agency. Um, we actually have to turn people away. So if other agencies do that, and, and you know, GAO is not the only one. NASA has a very good recruiting program, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, and these are for highly skilled positions too. So for those agencies that uh, give it leadership attention, that are creative, uh, they take innovative approaches, and they take the time to actually build their brand on campus, um, they're going to be competitive in the labor market. You know, I'd like to stay on the uh, workforce challenges, but shift it a little bit towards uh, what are some of the critical uh, leadership pipeline challenges facing the U.S. federal government, and what is being done to, to address those challenges? Sure. Well, first, I think it's important to define what a leader is, what kind of leaders we need. Um, and that, that changes and that, that evolves. So, for example, for senior executives, um, do we want transformational change agents, people who can go into any agency and, and turn it around, agencies that are, are experiencing certain management channel, uh, challenges. And there's probably only a handful of people with the, the skills and abilities to do that. Um, other leaders might be program managers, people who know how to run specific programs. A third type of leader might be one who is skilled in a particular technical area, a statistician or a physicist, for example. They may not be good at leading people, but they're really good bench scientists. And so when we look at the pipeline, um, agencies need to first see what their needs are, both their current needs and what their emerging needs are. They need to do the workforce analytics and the strategic succession planning to make sure that they're not just backfilling positions, but really building an agency for the future that's going to meet the, the future needs. And, and agencies don't always do a good job of that. And so then when looking into the pipeline, 
they need to see look at it from from a skills perspective are this right uh, people with the right skills and competencies there it's also important to look at it from a diversity and inclusion perspective too are we getting um, a diverse leadership um, and so again agencies don't don't always do that so you know earlier you mentioned the high risk list and um the uh, GAO has been putting that out since the 1990s. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about it. What's the goal of the list? And what has changed over the years? What has been, what, what topics or issues have been removed from the list? Sure. Well, uh, just a little bit of background on, on the high risk list. It comes out every two years. It, uh, it comes out in odd numbered years with the seating of the new Congress. And the purpose of it is to highlight those federal programs, agencies, or, or activities that are at high risk for waste, fraud, abuse, or mismanagement, or are in need of transformation. So that has changed somewhat over time. Um, on the most recent high-risk list, um, uh, two areas were added, and that was uh, government-wide personnel security clearances, a process for that. VA acquisition management was also added. And then uh, two areas were removed, um, DOD supply chain management and mitigating uh, gaps in weather satellite data. Overall, if you look at there's there's 35 areas on GAO's high risk list. And um, in 2019, um, there were uh, seven areas that actually that made progress and three areas that, that regressed. And the purpose of it, it's not to shame agencies. It's, it's not like being on the, the worst dressed list. The idea is to call attention to these programs, it's to cry for help. And that those agencies that are more successful than others in getting off the list are those that embrace it and embrace the recommendations. And so that's so important. And what we do once the high risk list comes out, there was a you know, big hearing, both for the, the House and Senate, and now going forward, what the various GAO mission teams will do is they'll continue to work with both congressional staff, making sure that, they're, that, they, that, that Congress continues to focus on these areas. We also work with the agencies themselves in terms of following up on our, our recommendations. We have sort of a, it's a separate product line now that we call it our, our priority recommendations. We make many, many recommendations but what we do is we try and highlight for agency heads on a regular basis. We send them a letter listing out those GAO recommendations that um, they should really focus on first because they are, are so important. Another way is that we work with agencies one-on-one -on -one and we share our best practices with them. We have a, a whole range of, of leading practices. They're there on our website and everything from risk management to um, uh, acquisition management, IT management, cost estimation, human capital. And so we bring in our experts to work with their managers and leaders and share our best practices with them. We want them to be successful. That's great. That's a great perspective on, on how to use the list. Um, I, I was wondering, uh, what are you doing to help agencies elevate performance management as part of their leadership uh, efforts? Sure. Well, we... You know, in terms of um, individual performance management, we've done a number of reports on this. And so we've been making recommendations. We have a number of um, reports with findings um, showing that one is a need for a better linkage between individual performance and organizational results, creating that, that line of sight for, 
for people. We've also been saying there needs to be a greater distribution in performance ratings. Right now, there's a big clustering of people. Everybody looks great. You know, everybody uh, is is exceeding expectations. And one, that's not the case. Um, and two, it's impossible to have performance discussions with them because you know if you are already exceeding expectations, and I come to you and and saying, well, these are some areas you need to improve, and you're just going to shut down. There's there's no basis. To, to have that, that dialogue. We're also trying to demonstrate for agencies that performance management should be ongoing. Right now at many agencies, it's a once a year activity. It's the appraisal process. But performance management is something that should be done on a daily basis through coaching and feedback and mentoring and providing opportunities. And then finally, um, another area that we've looked at is uh, agencies need to do a better job of dealing with, with poor performers. Um, use the probationary period for what it was there for. Basically, it's a one or two year interview process um, and then hold employees uh, uh, accountable because if you don't, it, it does make it, you know, over time to more difficult to terminate employees once the probationary period is over. And, uh, you know, that sets up agencies for other types of, of challenges going forward. What are some of the key governance challenges facing federal agencies? I'll explore this question and so much more with our special guest, Robert Goldenkopf, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. The federal government can reduce costs while improving services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies to achieve similar benefits in government. Check out the IBM Center special report, Transforming Government Through Technology, a companion piece to a more detailed report by the Technology CEO Council. That report outlines how technology-based reforms can reduce federal costs by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. Driving change in the federal government requires more than new policies or the infusion of new technologies. It requires a sustained focus on implementation to achieve positive and significant results. This IBM Center special report provides a roadmap for government leaders to do just that. Download Transforming Government through technology and all IBM Center reports at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour the ASPA Conference Series. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and my guest today is Robert Goldenkopf, Director of Strategic Issues at the Government Accountability Office, GAO. So, Robert, you mentioned that the uh, the 2020 census is in your portfolio. Could you tell us a little bit more of the status of what's going on there? What are some of the key challenges in this area, and what's being done to, to address those challenges? Sure. Well, the United States Census Bureau, it's part of the Department of Commerce, um, it has a really tough job to do. It is mandated by the Constitution to count every person residing in the United States. And it's one of the few programs in the federal government that is actually mandated by the Constitution. So right off the bat, it has a very difficult job. But the over time, uh, the, the Census Bureau, the cost of taking the census... Uh, is, is going up. 
it costs, for example, you would expect some increase in cost. The population, of course, gets gets larger, so there's a, a greater workload. But we've looked at it on a per unit basis, the cost of counting each housing unit. And so it costs about $16 to count each housing unit on average in 1970. And that compares to about $92 to count every housing unit in 2010. And that's all in inflation adjusted dollars. It's all in in, um, 2020 dollars. At the same time, so the cost is going up, but the results are going down. Um, they, the, the response rate has gone down and it, it's been hovering around the low to mid 60s for the last two decennia. So essentially what's happening is that it's costing more and more money to get the same results. And what's the reason for that? It's not because the Census Bureau has become any less competent in the job. It's a, a key driver of that is that the nation is getting harder and harder to count and less willing to cooperate in the census. Society has also gotten more complex. You have more people living in hidden housing units, basements, attics, converted apartments, cars, for example, migrant farm workers. So that adds to complexity. There's more people living in gated communities. And then just as I said, people don't want to participate in the census. So as a result, the Census Bureau has to put forth more effort in order to locate people and then include them in the census. So for example, um, prior to the 2000 census, the Census Bureau was able to get away with um, using public service advertisements. But beginning in 2000, they actually had to resort to paid advertising. They have a very extensive outreach and promotion program. They have to um, print their questionnaires and provide questionnaire assistance in multiple languages. And so you can see how the cost can add up very quickly. Now the Census Bureau realized this, and so they've been, from 1970 to 2010, they've been conducting the census in pretty much the same way. They would mail out a whole lot of forms, and then people would fill them out and respond. Well, um, that approach wasn't working anymore. So what the Census Bureau decided to do was redesign the census. And we GAO has recommended that. So for example, um, they're relying much more on technology. People will be allowed to respond to the census via the internet. They're also going to use technology to run their, their field operations. They're also going to rely on administrative records, which is basically data collected in, in other data sets. For example, um, uh, tax records, Medicaid records. The idea being that so if they can't get you through this, the, they can't locate you um, through the census. This, these administrative records, these other data sets, can help fill in holes in, in the data. So the this uh, redesign of the census, um, it's a great idea, um, and it was much much needed. But of course, with innovations come new risks because many of these things, for example, responding via the internet. Um, that has never been done in, in, in a large way in, in prior decennials before. So because of this, there's a lot of testing that needs to be done. And for budgetary reasons, the Census Bureau curtailed its testing program. And so not every activity has been tested under census-like conditions going forward. And so there's some unknowns there. Uh, we're also concerned about the reliability of the Census Bureau's cost estimates Third thing that we're concerned about is their management of their IT systems and cybersecurity. 
And so underlying all of this uh, is that the census is run an extremely tight schedule. So census day by law is April 1st. The state population counts need to be reported to the president um, by December 31st of 2020. So if you start falling behind schedule, it's really hard to make up for, for lost time. And so any problems that occur upstream can start having cascading effects, which can lead to cost increases or accuracy issues. Is that why they it was put on the high-risk list? In a nutshell, that is exactly why it was put on our, our high-risk list. How are you work, You kind of alluded to it, but how are you working with the program and census itself to to address those? Sure. Well, we're working in a number of ways. First, our regular reporting process. We we issue regular reports on all the different areas of the census, the the management and operations. We also uh, have a number of reports and recommendations on the management of their IT systems and the implementation of the systems and, and cybersecurity. We also do a lot of work behind the scenes, working with Department of Commerce officials and Census Bureau officials um, to make sure that there's top leadership attention. And we also work with congressional staff to keep them educated to make sure that um, the decennial census is on their watch list because the data, of course, is so important. The data are used to apportion and redistrict Congress. It's used to allocate billions and billions of dollars in federal funds every single year. It's also used to enforce civil rights laws, things like the Voting Rights Act, for example. Private sector uses the data for marketing and and other purposes. So the Census Bureau needs to get it right. And I will say that um, both the Census Bureau and the Department of Commerce have really embraced our recommendations, and they uh, we meet with them on a regular basis at the director's level and more senior officials at the Department of Commerce. And so that's one of the reasons why we've we've seen the improvements that that we have. For example, the Census Bureau um, has improved um, the process uh, through which it uh, does its uh, cost estimates. All because of your work. That's a, it, yeah. was, it was a large role. They um, used our, our best practices. Wonderful. That's great. So, you know, switching gears a little bit, you mentioned Congress, you mentioned the importance of, of the census information to Congress. But I'm wondering, how do you work with Congress to address some of the 21st, some of the governance challenges of the 21st century? Sure. I think because congressional staff, there's a lot of turnover on, on congressional staff. In some cases, they don't always have the experience, or there's just many things on their radar screen. Um, and so one of the ways we, we work with, with congressional staff is to identify newly emerging problems that should be on their radar screen. We also help them with um, oversight agendas. Uh, we also help them with, if they're crafting new laws, we can provide comments on, on bills that they write um, based on all the, the research that, that we've done. And so through all those, those different mechanisms, it helps them to, to focus and see some of the, not just the current challenges, but things that they need to keep on their, their radar screen going forward. You know, as part of your portfolio workforce, obviously we talked a little bit about it, but I was wondering how are you helping or ensuring that agencies have the right people with the right skills in the right positions? Sure. Well, I mean, so government wide, I mean, I think that's a key part of the the oversight that we do at GEO, not so much getting down into the you know, to the individual agencies, but we help them with the processes and practices. Um, to help the agencies determine whether or not they have the, the right people. And this is, this, this is 
workforce analytics yeah. and and aligning it's aligning your workforce with the future needs of your agencies and and that is is constantly evolving a couple you know um Several years ago, it wasn't too long ago, when cybersecurity just didn't even exist. I mean, it was an existential issue. It didn't exist as a, a government job period. You know, so just having OPM, the Office of Personnel Management, which is the government central personnel agency, um, develop um, a, a, a classification um, scheme for the cybersecurity occupation, define what it is, how it should get paid, was a big step forward. As I said, so we don't we try to stay away from doing the actual analysis yes. because that's a skill that agencies need to learn on their own. But what we do try and do is uh, show the the practices that they should be using, uh, using um, strategic planning, workforce planning, uh, using metrics um, to determine the effectiveness of their recruiting programs. We show them what success looks like in each of these different talent management areas. So, Robert, I talk to many of my guests about the use of collaboration partnerships among agencies, branches of government, and the private sector to achieve mission results. How are you leveraging partnerships to improve management operations? Sure. That's such an important part of what we do at at every level of the organization. It's very important for GAO because we need to have an external view. We can't live in our own bubble. The world is changing, society changes, technology changes, and GAO needs to, to stay abreast of, of all these, these different um, changes and so that we can position ourselves, both programmatically and also our workforce, for the future. Um, and so we do actively partner and collaborate with a range of external organizations. So at the, at the top level, the Comptroller General has a domestic working group, which gets together periodically to talk about some of the key issues facing the nation. Uh, there's also an educator's advisory panel. So periodically deans from across the country come into to GAO and talk about what they're seeing and and the curriculum and what are and, and and also it goes two ways as as well. We can talk to them about the issues that we're seeing so they can adapt their curriculum uh, accordingly. Um, we also work with the supreme audit institutions around the world. So those are the the GAOs in in other countries. We also work with the uh, professional associations such as ASPA. The Association of Government Accountants, the National Academy of Public Administration, the Intergovernmental Audit Forums. And so those are so important for an environmental scan. We also partner with organizations to help improve governance more at at my level in the organization. So, for example, we work with the National Academy of Public Administration. This is me, my, my team, and I work with the National Academy of Public Administration, the Partnership for Public Service. And so um, they leverage our findings from our reports, um, uh, best practices in recruiting, best practices in performance management. And so that helps get the word out to other, because they conduct a lot of training. And so whereas uh, a GAO report may only reach a, a certain audience when it goes out to the Partnership for Public Service and they embed our practices or findings in the training that they do to managers, it reaches a much broader audience. And so we're actually baking in better governance 
through these these programs. Uh, to me, that's an audit we don't have to do down the road or a management failure that we don't have to deal with in the future. So we are here at ASPA at the annual conference. What brings you here? Well, um, I've been uh, a member of ASPA. I actually, I started first in, in graduate school. So um, both uh, was working with ASPA. I had some local leadership level. So for me, it was a great way of sharing information, networking, professional development. And these um, relationships are lifelong. I mean, they go back now 25, 30 years. I see people here that I first met decades ago. Um, and it's great. I have a, a portfolio of cards here and I just um, people who I want to connect with. And so it's so helpful both in terms of seeing what's going on elsewhere outside of D.C., um, what are the problems they're encountering, what management challenges. So, you know, it helps bring a sense of realism and authenticity and relevancy to our work. And of course, you know, it's our market as well. And so <laughs> it helps connect with folks and uh, say, hey, we have a read. This is a challenge you're facing. We, we have a report on that or so. I was wondering what panel you were you, you participated in the panel. Sure. It was a, a president's panel on, on leadership and it was looking at the how can we build the pipeline for the next generation of, of leadership. Mm -hmm. What was uh, would you like to highlight some of the some of the things that were discussed? Oh, oh, sure. It was basically um, what are leaders? What are some of the, the, the challenges in leadership development? How can agencies do a better job of leadership development? Um, and so the panel consisted of. Um, uh, Chief Human Capital Officer from the Department of Homeland Security, senior level person from the Office of Management and Budget. There was an academician on the panel. And then so we all provided very different perspectives. That's great. So, uh, you know, Robert, as we close today, what advice would you give someone who's thinking about a career in public service? It, you know, I, I think that particular public service, I mean, federal service in particular may have gotten a bad rap recently. I mean, there's there's the shutdown, there's this this whole environment. Um, and so there's a lot of, and you see it in, in articles, you know, is, is the next generation, are they, they going to be interested in, in public service? And and I see it differently. I, I, I am very optimistic. There is a lot of great work to be done, improving the environment, strengthening cybersecurity defenses, defense, border security, regardless of where you sit on the political spectrum, there's a lot of important, complex work to be done. And if you're looking to do challenging work and make a difference, federal government is a place to be. I want to thank you for, for taking some time out of, out of your visit to the conference and coming in and talking with me. But more importantly, Robert, I'd like to thank you for your dedicated service to the country. Well, it's, it's, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. This has been a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with Robert Goldenkopf, Director of Strategic Issues at the Government Accountability Office, GAO. We close this edition of the Business of Government Hour with the center this week and my conversation with an international leader on public administration Gert Burkhardt. Join me next week for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government and its effectiveness. How is the federal government leveraging data as a strategic asset? 
How's the federal government building the infrastructure for evidence-based policymaking? What does the future hold for the federal data and statistical communications? Join host Michael Keegan as he explores these questions and more with Nancy Potok, Chief Statistician of the U.S. within the Office of Management and Budget, OMB. That's next week on the Business of Government Hour. The Business of Government Hour every Monday at 11 a.m. on the Federal News Network. The federal government can reduce costs while improving services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies to achieve similar benefits in government. Check out the IBM Center special report, Transforming Government Through Technology. It outlines how technology-based reforms can reduce federal costs by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. Download Transforming Government Through Technology and all Center reports at businessofgovernment.org. This is the Center This Week, highlighting the latest trends and best practices for improving government effectiveness. Brought to you by the IBM Center for the Business of Government. I'm Michael Keegan, Managing Editor of the Business of Government magazine. The Center This Week is our opportunity to inform and, most importantly, to invite you, our listeners, to use the IBM Center for the Business of Government as your resource, a how-to resource for improving government effectiveness at the state, local, and federal level. Recently, I was at the annual conference of the American Society of Public Administration, ASPA, and I had an opportunity to talk to Geert Burkhardt, president of the International Institute of Administrative Sciences. So, Geert, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, uh, my name is Geert Burkhardt. I'm a professor at the University of Leuven. I'm responsible for public management and public governance research, teaching, uh, consultancy, and uh, I'm predominantly focusing on comparative research within the OECD, and uh, that includes uh, financial management, performance management uh, in the broad sense, so including trust issues and reform of the public sector to be fit for purpose for the future. What's your background? I have a mixed background. as a European, uh, I my first degree was uh, business engineering, which is a combination of MBA and civil engineering. But I found that too narrow, so I immediately combined it with philosophy, which I also finished. So I have a degree in philosophy, and that brought me to my mission in life uh, to think critically about the public sector. So I added also political science to that. So I have studied, I finished studies at three faculties and my PhD was in social sciences on productivity measurement in the public sector. Wow. Okay, great. So I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the um, IIAS. And yes. what are some of the, could you tell us, uh, um, first off, could you give us a little bit about the history and yes. mission? IIAS is a fascinating organization. It was founded in 1930. So it's actually the oldest um, global organization in uh, public administration. Okay. It was uh, part of the League of Nations uh, ambition, supported by the Belgian government to contribute to world peace. And the uh, Belgian government wanted an international institute uh, focusing on the quality of the public sector to contribute to world peace. And so since 1930, we are based in Brussels supported, uh, you know, hosted by the Belgian government. Uh, But we are international. That means we follow the coming from the League of Nations, which then became the United Nations. 
Um, we are recognized by the United Nations and we have member countries. So in my Council of Administration, we have countries and representatives of countries around the table like India, China, Brazil, Finland, uh, Bahrain, uh, and so on. So it's a global organization that um, focuses on academics, but also top civil servants and a bridge between them to see how we can improve the public sector um, uh, worldwide. Mm -hmm. We are focusing on SDGs currently, so our strategy is how can we support our members and and the general uh, societies to get uh, the SDGs. And as you may know, there are 17 sustainable development goals. Mm -hmm. So it's uh, how to make that happen um, in in reality. So by 2030, the ambition of the United Nations is to realize the 17 Sustainable Development Goals. And uh, we, our next conference, because we have constantly conferences all over the world, our next one is in Singapore. Uh, and uh, the topic of the conference is effectiveness, accountability and inclusion, the three key terms to realize the Sustainable Development Goals. So what about your leadership role? Could you tell us more about that? How how do you juggle both your academic uh, role and your current role with the IIAS? Well, I think it's, uh, uh, I consider the presidency of IIAS as an intellectual leadership uh, to guide our members to guide debates, to make sure we have an upgrading of the quality of governance in the member countries, to make sure there's a bridge between academia and top level uh, practice. We call them pracademics. Uh, I think it's important to to have to organize the two-way traffic. And, um, you know, to make sure the regions and the countries have the debates which are relevant for the future. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you mentioned the, the, the 17 sustainability goals, but I was wondering about the, uh, the uh, key priorities uh, in, your, um, in IIAS. What are the key priorities going forward for like the next couple of years? I think the capacity and the readiness of the public sector for the future challenges is crucial. In some countries, uh, there is a conviction that the public sector is part of the problem. I won't mention any countries in particular. We are convinced that the public sector is part of the solution. But that brings a responsibility to make sure the public sector functions properly. That means that we have effective policies and effective service delivery, that we have transparency in the decision-making, that we have legitimacy, that we build systems that are trusting and trustworthy. And I think that's actually the debates I want to trigger amongst our members uh, in academia and in uh, the public policies. So that's actually the intellectual challenge to guarantee in the future that academic research is relevant to realize this agenda. That's not easy because the academic community 
you know, wants to make their own careers and uh, do research on tiny topics which are irrelevant. <laughs> and so we want to raise and bring back the big questions. We also want policymakers to trust scientists. That's not easy in an era of fake news and fake data and so on. And so we want actually to make sure that policymakers also are convinced that evidence-based policies are better than uh, other policies. And that, in that implies, of course, um, let's say, a solid uh, vision on governance, public governance. Given you're the intersection between the uh, academic and the practitioner, perhaps I could split this question up. What are some of the challenges, some of the really significant challenges being faced in the academic side as well as the practitioner side in public administration and administrative sciences? Well, one of the elements on the academic side, it's not just research, it's also teaching. And so the question is, how should we teach, adjust our teaching to make sure that we have the right civil servants in the future, to make sure that we have citizens, you know, private sector people that understand the public sector, and that there is a, a, a kind of systemic uh, capacity to cope with the future challenges. I think that's uh, an academic uh, challenge in itself, uh, since it means we have we cannot just copy paste the past uh, as far as teaching is concerned. We have to reinvent that. We have to make sure we have the another type of researchers too. That means um, the the disciplines should we have more lawyers or more social scientists or perhaps anthropologists, and so the classical silos between the disciplines is a, a big issue in the academia uh, and that of course um, brings us to the way of teaching so instead of having teaching from the silos and then the persons have to you know take care of themselves by bringing everything together I think we have to reverse our type of teaching by having like big cases which then the students uh, in a kaleidoscopic way, look from different angles, which are the disciplines. So that's a Copernical change of the teaching. So I think that's a crucial way to adjust uh, universities and the academia to uh, prepare people that are fit for purpose for future challenges. And the same applies, of course, to the civil servants and the policymakers, but also people that are in NGOs, to better understand this in the private sector because increasingly we have public-private partnerships. Mm -hmm. yeah. So we need a kind of mutual understanding instead of uh, having a diverging vision or you know, uh, considering other sides of society as obsolete mm -hmm. uh, or uh, undesirable. We of course need a kind of fair equilibrium uh, between NGOs, private sector and public sector, you know, uh, that depends on, on the systems. More information on this and other centered resources is available at businessofgovernment.org. There you will find how the business of government is not business as usual. For the IBM Center for the Business of Government, I'm Michael Keegan, and this has been The Center This Week.